Hello, and welcome to The Consumer VC. I am your host, Mike Gelb, and on this show, we talk about the world of venture capital and innovation in both consumer technology and consumer products. If you're enjoying this content, you could subscribe to my newsletter, theconsumervc.substack.com to get each new episode and more consumer news delivered straight to your inbox. Thank you, Mike Duda, for the intro to our guests today, Gabby Cohen and Tamita Heider. Gabby is the global head of integrated marketing at Harry's Inc. And Tamina is head of Harry's Labs. It was amazing learning about the evolution of Harry's from a razor and shaving company to developing products in new categories and creating a portfolio of brands by both building and acquiring other consumer brands. In this episode, you'll learn about their approach to brand development, the types of brands they look to acquire, and how they think and approach different sales channels. Without further ado, here's Gabby and Tamina. Gabby and Tamina, thank you so much for joining me today. How are you both? Doing well. Thanks for having us, Mike. Excellent. Very happy to be here, Mike. Oh, it's so great to have you both on. Uh, I want to start from the very beginning. What attracted each of you to work and be part of Harry's? I can talk a little bit about why I decided to join Harry's. I think there are probably two really important reasons. One is a little personal. Um, I had known Jeff and Andy from way back when, right out of undergrad. We all worked together and had just long had a lot of admiration for what they were building at Harry's. And I think one of the things that played and was really important to me is just how values-driven our organization is and the entire company is both internally in terms of how we operate and treat our team and then also externally in terms of the social mission and the um, commitments that each of our brands make to social causes in the world. And that really resonated for me personally. Um, So that was one big reason. And then the second really was as I started talking to Jeff in particular at that time around labs and this idea of taking what the brand, sorry, what the company had been able to do to scale the Harry's brand, all the infrastructure building, all the capabilities that had been built, and thinking about how to bring those to bear with into, for other brands, whether they be brands we started ourselves or brands we went out and acquired. That felt like something really disruptive to do in the very fast-moving and fast-changing consumer landscape. So I felt like it would be a really exciting thing to do to be a part of that and be able to put kind of my fingerprints on it. And so that was the other big reason why I joined. So I actually was part of the team that helped to launch Flamingo in 2018. So really had an opportunity as a consultant to meet and work with the the team. And I was truly blown away by the culture of the organization and the people and the sense of community and collaboration. And so when the opportunity to return and really work across brand um, and work with all the, the brand leaders and leaders like Tamina and helping to build a corporate communication function. So I really have the opportunity to work with all the teams within the organization for me was an absolute no brainer. I also think the sheer opportunity for the business to just find uh, and create products that people really like and resonate with more and that there is an element of giving back and doing better and really supporting mental health and everything we do. It's really like there's a, you know, a real through line in the mission and then how people operate within the business and treat each other. And that to me was just a real reason to return and, and work with this incredible team. No, that's that that's amazing. I'm also just hearing like a, a glimpse of, about 
both your stories, how you think about the brand, and as well as where Harry's is going, and we're able to build and buy um, incredible businesses, um, which I know we're going to dive into more on, but also just how you think as well about consumer products more generally. Gabby, if you were to describe or pitch Harry's brand to someone who had never interacted or heard of Harry's, how would you do so? It's funny, I've never even like had to be on call for my elevator pitch. I think for Harry's brand, it's really creating men's grooming products that are uh, that people really like more and creating products for men that are attainable luxuries and real products that solve day-to-day problems in their lives. I do think one of the things that is a really nice thread that sits across all of our brands, which her, certainly the Harry's brand kind of pioneered, is this idea that we're creating great products that have deliver really amazing functional outcomes, but they also have a real emotional connection with the customer that they're serving. And so they go beyond just you know, doing the job of shaving, but they do a job around what it means to be a Harry's customer, what it means to use the Harry's product. And I think that's like really a, a thread that is common across all the brands that are in our portfolio. Well, I think then, though, how what is Harry's approach to innovation? And how do you think about great branding, great marketing, when you think about new brands, and as well as product differentiation as well, right? And making sure that the product matches everything that you say in the marketing and branding. Maybe Tamina, we'll, we'll start with you on this one since we started with Gabby last time. Sure, sure. And maybe I'll focus a little bit more on how we think about new brands and how we think about Um, bringing brands into our portfolio. And obviously those assessments are really important parts of both us deciding we're going to spend money to launch a new brand or that it's something we want to go out in the world and acquire. And I would say for us, it really starts with the belief that what Gabby mentioned is true, which is our mission to create things people like more. Um, And for us, that's all about whether it's we're looking at a new brand out in the world or we're thinking about building our own brand. Is there a reason why customers in the market today are not having an optimized experience? Is there a way in which we can deliver a better, and I'm using the word experience thoughtfully because to us, it's not just about product. Product is a really important part of it, but it's also about price value equations, also about transparency of ingredients. It's how is this product accessed? So many of those things can deliver a sub-optimized experience to customers. And so for us, it really starts with a deep and true belief that there is a real ability for us to deliver something that's better. Um, across one or multiple of those dimensions. And Harry's is a great example of that, right? What did Harry's do? We think we're offering a really great set of products, our razors and beyond, but we're also delivering them in a package that really resonates and communicating them in a way that makes customers feel really good about the brand that they're using. And we knew there was a pain point. There was a pain point around pricing and there was a pain point around resonance of brand that existed in the category before we launched. And so that's where it all starts for us. And I'm happy to chat more about how we go about assessing whether that exists or not. But but that is really the, the ink and it's so important to us. It's something we talk about all the time when we're talking about new brands and innovation. And I think Tamina's note on solving a pain point, right? I think that's a real, it's, it's, it's a real filter for us in terms of like, are we delivering something that doesn't exist for the consumer today? And that could be everything from access to price, to quality of product, to ingredients. But are we solving for something versus just creating something or building something without a need is not you know, typically how this the business and we think about things here at Harry's. Yeah, I mean, I think those are those are all, I mean, excellent points. It's really great to learn as well, just how you all think about innovation and as well as launching or buying new brands. What's that like as well, just making that, do you ever, when you look at a brand and they might fit, you may think that they're a fit to, to Harry's, you ever think, gee, maybe we could actually build something similar in-house or, or kind of how do you think about innovation versus buy versus build and that whole, you know, dynamic? 
It's a great question, Mike. I think for us, we are like we both Gabby and I mentioned, we're, we're out in the world trying to seek, we call it positive utility. How do we create positive utility for customers? And that's where it starts. And we would not pursue an opportunity within our, within our own brands or with other brands if we didn't believe that existed. I think the real screen for us on whether it makes sense for us to create something within a brand or think about it in a new brand context is probably the first screen. And that screen is really about, is there a shared customer? So is the Harry's customer experiencing what it is that we believe is that pain point? And is it in a category that's close enough that it makes sense for the Harry's brand to take that on? So is it sort of similar functionally, similar emotional outcome that the customer is looking for? And is it like largely the same customers looking for that. So that's kind of like screen one. Should we do this within one of our existing brands that could be Flamingo or Harry's or headquarters? Or, you know, should we go think about this in a new brand context? And then I think when we think, when it comes to thinking about whether we should build or buy, there is a little bit of a, our strategy that sits behind that. And I think right now we are pretty squarely focused on thinking about acquisitions and bringing more scaled businesses into our ecosystem. And so we probably, you know, sort of air towards doing that, at least in this strategic moment. I think when we would think about actually more of a build situation would be more when we actually are finding that that pain point isn't really being serviced by any brands out in the market. And that if we want to go and do the thing that we want to go do, that we feel like will deliver that optimized experience, we probably need to build it ourselves. And so that's kind of the compass that we're using, at, at least right now. That's great. That's great. How as well do you both think about macro trends and maybe consumer behaviors that do you think about like any macro trends that maybe might be like a North Star for you? As well as there's functionality behind the product, but it actually serves like a compelling consumer trend that actually that you're passionate about. Certainly we we keep an eye on macro trends. I don't know that we would, you know, specifically develop a brand or product around macro trends because they often can change pretty quickly. But you know, I think it's it's important to meet the consumer where they are. And I think that's part of why, you know, we were really moved quickly to be an omni-channel brand because we it's really around access, right? And how are you making the shopping experience really simple for people? And I think especially coming out of the pand- pandemic, being omni-channel is is important now more than ever and, and being where your customer are and making that access as simple simple as possible. But certainly, I think it's something we continually keep our eyes on, um, you know, and, and, you know, make sure that we are keeping ahead of or with trends, especially as it relates to consumer shopping behavior. I guess what I would say is I think we try to like sort of like everyone, make sure that we're drawing a distinction between what we feel is like a flash in the pan versus like a more fundamental shift in what's happening with with respect to consumer behavior. And I think when we things are happening in the latter bucket, we try to really understand them and think about how they should impact our own existing brands, but also how we're thinking about new products and new innovations and, and new brands. So some examples, you know, so we launched Cat Person, which is obviously all about celebrating the bond that exists between a cat parent and a cat, which, you know, we thought is, was an under-celebrated bond. Um, but obviously a lot of what sits behind that and this idea of ensuring that you're treating your cat almost like your child is a trend around humanization of pets that's been existent for quite some time and has had sort of a bunch of ripple effects within the pet industry. And so I think what we try to think about is if there are these more macro and dynamic shifts going on, how do we stay at sort of the cutting edge of them and do things that are different, leveraging what we know are some changes in consumer behaviors and attitudes. And that's probably, you know, a great example of that. Tons of things happening in the dog space, tons of changing in food approach happening there. But, you know, we recognize that the cat space was lagging a bit. So those types of things are definitely things we try to keep you know, really keep close tabs on. And I think we have the benefit of talking to lots of entrepreneurs and brands as we think about acquisitions. So really seeing how they're impacting behavior and impacting, you know, brands that are developing in the market. 
Those are some really great points. I'm glad that you used as an example. And um, I mean, it reminds me a little bit, I, I, when we talk about this on the show a lot with investors, part of their job is to figure out, you know, what's a fad and what's a trend and understand like what is like a flash of pan, as you say, versus an actual trend that actually will be around for years and years and years. And I know backing up a bit, I know you talked about how when you think about buying a brand, you think, okay, do we have kind of a shared customer? with of the Harry's brand and that company that you're looking to acquire or thinking about acquiring, how would you describe Harry's ideal customer? We have different ways that we sort of talk about our consumer, you know, whether it's the expressive independent, you know, for us, it's around, again, I think solving a pain point, right? So it, it's, I wouldn't say there's one core customer because we have four businesses that are actually quite different, right? And I think we look at businesses that are looking at, at, at consumers that are not necessarily who our core consumer is today, right? Our Harry's brand customer is different than our Flamingo brand customer is different than our CAC person and our headquarters person. I think it would be, it would be foolish to say we only look at, you know, if you're the ages of 18 and 40, and those are our core customers, because there could be an opportunity to acquire or develop a brand that's geared towards seniors. And I think that's incredibly exciting. So I, I wouldn't say that we just look at like one area of consumer and say that like, this is our core and that's who we're going after. It's really around opportunity. And is there a market opportunity for this? And are there consumers that are underserved in this category? Again, I think we are really great at building and scaling brands and finding the right consumers for those brands and connecting to them. Um, so I wouldn't really narrow ourselves to saying this is the only consumer that we're excited we want to work with. That's a great point. Considering the number of brands that you do have, and so on a macro level, it's hard to actually pinpoint, all right, this is our actual ideal customer. But I guess, Tamina, when you think about um, as well, like on the acquisition side, um, and you're looking at maybe crossover and maybe qualities that maybe some of these uh, brands that you're looking to acquire might have, might, might share with some of the brands that Harry's had. How do you think about that? I think to build on what Gabby mentioned, we actually are explicitly looking for brands that are not servicing the same customer in the same category. I think as we, and if that wasn't clear before, I should definitely clarify, but as we think about M&A, we think about, or we think about building new brands, I think the anti-goal would be to build a brand that serves the same customer in similar categories because we already have a brand that's doing that. And that would be, you know, we have limited resources. So a lot of what we want to do with new brands with M&A is think about expanding the addressable market of our company, both from a category perspective and from a customer perspective. So that's kind of our, I think, our guiding tent goal. I do think the one thing I would draw in common across all of our brands is that we, one, try to be really thoughtful about having a consistent customer that we're serving as we go into more than multiple categories, because that's what keeps a brand cohesive. You're trying to ensure that the same customer that you serve, for example, in grooming is the customer, and there's high degrees of overlap with the customer that now Harry's will serve in the body category. It's not going to be 100% overlap, of course, but that you're sort of building a brand against a customer in a, you know, in a consistent way. So that's one thing I think we do try to do for all of our brands that we look for when we look at acquisitions, that there is a clear perspective perspective on who the customer is. And there's consistency with that customer is across categories. Um, and then the second thing I would say is that we try to be really thoughtful about not defining our customer targets by demographics. So we're not saying like, you know, we want to target this gender in this age, in this age group that lives in these places like that, or that is like sort of 
the anti goal. I think for us, because we're trying to build brands that address a, a, a pain point and reach towards a functional and emotional outcome, we try to be very thoughtful about defining our target customers in psychographic ways. So they have these types of attitudes. They believe these types of things. They're searching for these types of outcomes. So like, I'll take headquarters as an example. For headquarters, like we, of course, at the end of the day, when you segment our customer, it's women and they tend to be in a certain age bracket. But the way we really think about them is, you know, they believe in the connection between scalp health and hair health. You know, they believe in the idea of a holistic view of wellness, both mental and physical, you know, things like that. Those are the unifying views that are identify our customer. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, also, it's also, you know, simplifying it too. It's not trying to put it narrowing into one specific demographic or one specific type of person. Instead, it's really taking a step back and realizing, okay, what is this pain point? How large, how can we assess and how large is this pain point for a customer base or, you know, is it more expansive than we even think? Would you mind giving me an example of maybe a pain point you saw recently? As we think about headquarters, for example, like there wasn't a really great root first affordable hair care system that was available both DTC and, you know, large retailer like Walmart. And so that was like a real pain point that we were solving for, um, for so many women who don't realize that your hair is actually dead and you've been taking care of something that's been dead for a really long time where it's really around starting at the root and the scalp. That's a great example of a real pain point. No, that makes a lot of sense. I think that, uh, to Gabby's point, What we try to think about a bunch is where are there spaces in which there were pain points, but brands have been created that start have started to address those pain points. It doesn't mean those aren't great brands. It might just mean that, you know, they're more acquisition targets than us trying to like build net new product or net new things into them. So I would say, you know, I think Gabby's example is an interesting one for sure. I think an area where we actually feel like there is continued opportunity for optimization is around areas like sexual wellness, for example where there continue to be, it's, you know, it's a very, there's a lot of stigma around the category. There's very little discussion, very little awareness, very little, you know, optimized product available in a way that's accessible for a lot of people. And I do think we're, we, we believe that that is an area where over time stigma will come down and people are going to get the solutions that they want. Um, so it's an area that we're excited about. I mean, I also think as another like opportunity area, menopause is incredibly exciting right now. I think that like you'll you'll you're going to start to see more and more brands that are, you know, bringing menopause down from this like big scary word to something that like a lot of women are going through and make it more accessible and like that have a level of sexiness to it, right? That you're not like you know walking one foot into the grave once you are go through menopause. And so I think that's like another really exciting area of of innovation that's happening right now. It's funny, I think you're probably getting from Gabby and I a lot of women first spaces, which I think is actually like in depth, sort of attuned to the market, which is that there are a lot of domains in which obviously women have been traditionally underserved or people that identify as female and a lot of really exciting um, things happening in the world to, to better address those pain points in some of the areas we mentioned and, and beyond. Three weeks ago, I hosted the Consumer VC Stigma Summit. We actually focused a lot on um, women's health. We had a, a company that actually in the menopause space, UTIs, for example. So yeah, this was very, very, this was, I mean, it reminds me just so much of these conversations I was having during that summit, which were really, really fascinating. I think, uh, like, even as you think about it, and I was talking about it today, it's like talking about macro trends in the pandemic, the innovation in terms of like tennis apparel 
And golf apparel has gone through the roof because it was like the one sport that people could do during the pandemic. And now all of the, like there's new companies that are building up, up you know, tennis and golf apparel, traditional, you know, brands that have never done it before are starting to do it. So I just, like, I just think that's like an interesting way of looking at macro trends and how the market starts to respond to it. Speaking of sales and revenue, where does a company typically have to be at um, in order for you to get excited or for you to maybe come in and acquire a company? Maybe ballpark revenue numbers, if that's possible, or just kind of understand like what kind of stage that they're at. Maybe, Tamita, we can start with you on this one. Sure. Well, I think what's most important to us is that they're at a stage where we feel like we'd be a really value-added partner for the next phase of their growth. So we typically are looking at our companies that have established themselves in a particular category and in a particular channel and really demonstrating traction there. So for example, they've got a set of products that are in a specific category and they're really crushing it on DTC. They have great economics. And the next big frontier for them is that we take this brand and really bring it into additional distribution channels, whether that's Amazon, whether that's brick and mortar retail. And then how do we sort of take this amazing brand platform, this consumer proposition that we've built and think about a more expansive product line over time. Um, and so it's not easy to pinpoint a revenue number for that because it's, it really does depend on the category and the category size. What I would say is that brands that are quite small and have, don't have that demonstrated traction and sort of like annualized growth happening are probably too small for us. So, you know, a brand that's doing $12 million in retail is probably not quite at that place yet. Um, so that's, that's kind of how we think about it. How as well do you find when you look at companies like true like consumer love and like their ability to, I know community kind of gets thrown out a lot when it comes to consumer brands, but able to kind of build a community or, you know, build a very just incredible like organic sales versus obviously paid acquisition. Listen, I think there's so much around like, how do you build a brand today that people care about? And something that I've really thought more and more, and I think will become more important and a piece of it that has not as uh, in the, you know, until more recently is how people take care of their employees. I actually think that will become more and more important as, you know, people think about how do they consume products and which ones they should, you know, engage with as part of it is like, how are they, how they operate in the world as organizations? Of course, creating a great product and great customer service and really building out like a really a customer journey. I think those are all incredible important solving a great need but I do think there you know are things that are like are they good are they doing good in the world I think that's where like Harry's also like has done an incredible job of like our one percent give back and and committing to that and I think that's really important to be thoughtful around like how you take care of your customers and your employees and how you treat people in the world yeah that's a great point how about you Tamita do you have anything to add no I think Gabby touched a lot on it I think for us, it goes back to, look, if we weren't believers in the power of brand, we wouldn't be doing the job that we are doing and we wouldn't be at the company that we're at. I think we have a really strong belief that brands do mean something and they do mean something to customers. And so we are obviously very focused on all the means with which you build that brand resonance and, and credibility and love. And I think Gabby touched on a bunch of them. I think when we go out in the world, we try to assess that. There's lots of interesting ways to do that. Um, we spend a lot of time reading customer reviews, understanding why people are coming to a brand, why they're trying the product, what are they liking, what are they not liking? You can get a lot of sense of that, um, of what people feel like about a brand, how much love they have it for it, if you just literally spend like 15 minutes reading all the reviews. And I think the other thing we see is that something that people have been craving for a long time, but they haven't been getting anywhere else, like the community just builds naturally. Um, and you start seeing it. You see it on like Reddit, you see it on like a, a Facebook group, you can like start seeing those things happening. And so we, we do get excited when we see things like that happening. 
No, that's that that's that's super cool, and also just also it's also interesting how you pay attention to you know how they are on Reddit or channels in terms of are consumers actually talking about the brand and just seeing how they're actually able to engage. Of course, this is all external. Um, for the brands, I want to also like talk about as well internally. When you do acquire a brand, of course, culture is such a huge, a huge thing. Where of course a brand is coming aboard and being part of of Harry's. How do you describe the Harry's culture? Because sometimes in M and A, these things might not work out, right? Where it might be very, very different cultures between the acquirer and the acquiree. So, how do you describe Harry's culture? And how do you kind of? It's weird, but how do you diligence culture in a funny way? Well, I think first on the Harry's culture, I think that we have done a lot of work to really define the values that personify our culture. And we try to live those every day, make them part of our, you know, the, the world, the, the nomenclature that we use internally. And we, you know, those are infused into the way that we assess people's performance. So that for us is how we think about values. I would, I would shy away from using like particular adjectives to describe the way that Harry's employees are, because I think that can be a bit limiting. For us, it's really about living our values, um, which are, you know, things like embrace the mammoth, which means say the thing that's hard to say, that the elephant in the room, say it, or improve always. So really could be committed to continuous improvement for yourself, your team, to work for others. Like that's, a, you know, one of our values, for example. Um, so that really embodies a lot of our culture. Obviously, a lot of the things that Gabby mentioned are also really important. The social mission, the 1% giving, these are really important parts of our brand. Um, there are also other things that are really important to us about our brand. You know, we want all of our brands to have a thoughtful approach to ingredients. You know, we think DEI is very important, both in the way we show up as brands and the way we build our team. So those types of things are really important to us. Um, I think what you said is really right. These are hard things to assess when it comes to a brand. We have created some tools that help us do that, When, but it is different and it's also different on the size of team, right? If you've got your, you're looking at business and it's a you know 20 to 30% person team, you're probably not going to go survey that they're 20 to 30 person team. That, that feels a little bit like, you know, just I'm not even sure you get the right data from it, honestly. So we think a lot about what are the questions that we ask along the way that get to the kind of culture that exists internally. And then we do look externally at the way the brand is showing up in the world and whether it's doing so in a way that feels consistent with how we think about our own brands. But we have we do have some quite specific questions we try to ask along the way. And if we do look at a bigger company, there are some tools we can use around understanding employee sentiment and the like and overlap with Harry's, but um, we try to hold those for you know much larger acquisitions. I guess back externally, like how do you also think about channel mix when you're actually looking at brands? Like whether it's online sales versus wholesale, do you kind of sway? Is a brand more attractive if if the majority of their sales, for example, is online D to C versus you know in wholesale or or maybe the majority is on Amazon? How do you think about all those types of kind of aspects of the business? And to, just to piggyback on that, I think what we think about is opportunity, right? So if you're strictly direct to consumer, then we have an opportunity to help scale retail and, and vice versa. Or if you have a really great brand presence, but your you know direct sales aren't great. Like I just, I think it's always looking at like, where is the opportunity? Um, and then how do we support that? Which is, you know, I think being that we are omni-channel that we really can help to assess like where they're, where they're winning and then where they, they have real opportunity. I think we're quite open in terms of what is the dominant channel that a brand is operating in when we think about an acquisition. Because like I I mentioned earlier, the most important thing for us is that the brand is really coming to a market in a way that is disruptive and serves a customer need a different way. And that can happen in a lot of different channels. Um, I think that all said, what we do want to see is that the brand's really working in that channel. So we're not dogmatic about it. I do think a lot of times what we, the value that we bring, which is really exciting, is we are an omni-channel business. 
think we've been able to really successfully grow our brand in an omni-channel way, have a really strong presence on DTC when it comes to the Harry's brand and our other brands and bring them into FDM retail at the right times and also start and continue to build momentum around an Amazon or other wholesale.com presence. And so what we get excited about is when we see brands, we feel like there's that omni-channel potential that really it can serve as customers across those channels and the business can economically work across all those channels. Has COVID at all changed maybe categories that you get excited about or or maybe have opened opportunities to new emerging categories that you might not have thought about before? Has that changed any of how you think about maybe where the consumer is spending its dollar, if that makes sense? Yeah, no, I mean, listen, I think certainly, I think it would be foolish to not say that there's there's been a ton of, you know, there are silver linings and how do you, how our consumers' behavior have changed and what they value is is different. And I think, um, you know, so I think that that's typically not, and from everything we do, right? Like how we market, how we communicate, um, how we think about customer service, right? Like I think there, this has sort of had a, uh, uh, you know, has impacted a lot of, of how, how businesses operate. Um, and certainly businesses have had the opportunity to capitalize on, on, you know, on the pandemic and created, you know, products that may not have been, uh, there may not have been a market for it. If you think about like, you know, how we have to create an entire, you know, new work from home element in that, our worlds have changed. And I think it's going to be, you know, rare that someone's going to be potentially in an office five days a week, every week. And so that's an entirely new, you know, industries of building even just like at home work environment. Um, So, you know, certainly there's been, you know, certain opportunities to, to think differently and and specifically from, for me, from a marketing perspective and communications perspective of how we communicate with our customers. I agree with everything Gabby said, certainly about like, where are eyeballs and what are people's priorities And I think what's interesting is, and we have spent some time thinking about is there's a lot of shifts in behavior that happened when COVID happened and everyone was um, quarantining. Um, And now that quarantine is starting to come to an end in some areas, if people are getting vaccinated, um, there are a bunch of shifts happening again in customer behavior and consumer behavior and priorities. So like travel is going to come back, for example. And so I do think that overall, um, it's going to be really interesting to think about how people prioritize spending. That all said, I do think that there is no doubt that what happened has changed people's mindsets and what their priority sets are. And so, for example, we think like this focus on like how you feel and taking care of yourself and like wellness, like it obviously existed before the pandemic, but it has definitely accelerated in the pandemic. And that has become much more important to people because I think the sense of like we're vulnerable is much greater. And so that's something we are really exploring and where does it hit other, where is it going to start to hit even more categories and how is it accelerated? The other really big thing that I would mention is that COVID and the time spent at home had a massive, massive impact on uptake on DTC spending. So a lot of categories moved forward many, many years in the span of six months because people were at home and were forced to shop online. And I don't think that is changing. And so that is like a really important thing that we think about as we think about brands, products, opportunities, like this shift in spend and where dollars are is is not going away. Well, on that point about D2C, I actually talked with an, an investor, Ernesto Schmidt, about he believes that actually a lot of brands are heading into retail way too early. And I'm kind of curious on when you're thinking about acquiring brands or when you're just looking at brands, especially since D2C now has the penetration level is, has, you know, has, has grown, I mean, crazy rapidly for COVID. Has this impacted you or your thinking on when it makes sense to actually launch a brand in retail if they're not, if they're not in retail yet? 
Look, I think for us, the decision about when to go to retail is more of a customer decision than anything else. And so what we want to do is go to retail at the point when we know that there are a lot of customers who are craving our brand for whom DTC is not yet a great option, or at least branded.com is not where they want to shop. Um, I just have a fundamental belief when it comes to brand.com and brand.com shopping. Of course, the penetration has grown quite a lot, but people are not, there's a limit to how many brand.com sites any individual customer is going to shop because you have to be highly engaged in a category to want to interact one-on-one with a brand. And so for us, we are thinking, you know, we do think about, okay, what is the point at which there's, we know there's a lot of broad awareness for this brand. We're not able to capture those dollars until we're, we're in more brick and mortar retail. I agree. I think it's not always, is this the right time, right? I think it's really being mindful of like, the, there is logistically, it's a, it's a huge lift for businesses to go retail. And so like, you know, I think there's a lot, not just from a brand awareness perspective, but just an operations perspective to ensure that brands are ready for that. What's the best piece of advice each of you have received? I can take it first. Um, I learned this early on. High road, long view. Life is really long and you will meet people again and again and again. And just like, take the high road. Life is long. It's a great one, Gabby. (laughs) Oh man, I have two. I've used one of these before, but I do think it has really influenced me a lot career-wise. One is that someone told me in my career that you should pay attention to how you feel. like, And literally told me, look at your calendar, look at it for the next week. What percentage of things on your calendar are you excited about? Like, are you really like, I'm psyched for that meeting. I'm psyched for that conversation. Like set the bar at 90, maybe be okay with 80. Don't be okay with less than that. If you're not at that point, you're not going to be a job that you love and you can't be great at things you don't love. So that was a very important piece of advice that I got that has definitely sort of like led me, had a lot of influence on kind of the career decisions I've made along the way. What is one book that inspired each of you personally and professionally? Radical Candor was, a, for me, like the aha management book of people. Um, I'm already someone who like wants to get to know my team and like wants to know everything about them, where they're from. And like I get deep into the weeds on people, but it really did help me like frame that into how to make that, use that as a superpower to be a good manager and really understanding what pe- makes people tick and develop real relationships with them to be able to give them feedback to help them grow. But at the end of the day, it's really around trust. And it just like, really helped me to frame how I want to be managed and how I want to manage I love I, I, that. Lots of inspiration from Radical Candor myself. Um, the other book that has had a, a, a pretty big impact on me in the last couple of years, actually someone at Harry's introduced me to it, is Mindset, which is all about the power of having a growth mindset um, and how that is really a big, important driver of success and that you need to infuse that in yourself and also into the way you perceive others around you. And I think that has had a, you know, a really big impact in how I try to approach new problems um, and how I also try to like coach folks who are on my team. I love it. Both these books sound fantastic. Um, and all you are both also very original. No one else on the podcast has mentioned either of these books. So super cool. And my last question is, what is one piece of advice that you have for anyone that is trying to build a brand? Solve a need. Like, and it could be a small need. It could be an enormous need. But solving a real need for customers is will help build a brand. And I, and I also think not trying to be all things to all people, right? Being authentic to who you are. But if I think even back to the days of when I was at SoulCycle, like we were creating a workout that didn't feel like work because exercise is a chore. And 
to me, like when I think about working on a brand, it's like, are we solving a real need that people don't have? And that could be, it could be anything from like a widget that doesn't exist to you know, make a car run faster, but solve a real customer need and then build a brand around that. I was going to give the same piece of advice, but I'll try to be different. <laughs> I do agree very much in particular with like, don't try to be everything to everyone. Do what you think is the, address what you think is the opportunity and don't get distracted by all the things around it. Um, but maybe I'll give a second piece of advice that's a little bit contradictory, so bear with me, which is that I would also listen carefully as you're in the market and pivot as you need to. Meaning, like, don't be so dogmatic in what you started with and be so laser sharp focused on it that you can't hear what other people are saying, in particular what customers are saying, and sort of like going and trying to pivot to, to the things that will be successful. Sort of related to that, I would say don't overcomplicate it. Like when I see businesses and they're like, there's 17 things going on and they're really complicated and this, this, I, those businesses tend to not work, honestly. So keep it simple to the extent that you can. All those responses are great. I think my takeaway is solve a pain point, but also go very deep. Don't try to go too wide and really try to you know focus on maybe one customer or one specific pain point rather than trying to solve for everything. And as well as just because maybe you think it's a pain point, but maybe it actually turns out it isn't, but maybe you need to pivot. Don't be scared to pivot. Listen to your customer, listen to your market, um, and then you can actually figure out what the right pain point is. Gabby and Tamina, thank you so much for coming on the show. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Mike. Thank you for having us. And there you have it. It was such a pleasure chatting with Gabby and Tamina. I hope you all enjoyed it as much as I did. I'd love it if you'd write a review on the Apple Podcasts. You're also welcome to follow me, your host, Mike, on Twitter at Mike Gelb, and also follow for episode announcements at ConsumerVC. Thanks for listening, everyone. 